You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Without question, there are global problems that require collective action. And you need an organization to evoke collective action. But the UN hasn't done that. I certainly see that the United Nations is not obsolete. I see that its promise is very much relevant. When you look at the vetoes, when you look at the voting behavior of China in the Security Council, it's actually changed. China hasn't changed. If anything, the Chinese Communist Party has become more aggressive and more dangerous. China is a, is a massive threat, and China seeks to use the United Nations as a vehicle, of course, for advancing its own power on the international stage. The year was 1945. The deadliest war in human history was coming to an end. The world wanted peace. Out of that, the United Nations was born, a global organization devoted to peace, security, and human rights. Yet three quarters of a century later, questions are emerging about whether the UN still matters. Critics say the organization is bloated, outdated, and a growing source of controversy. Advocates tout its efforts in humanitarian aid, climate change, and its commitment to human rights in an ever more fractured political landscape. And so, in the context of this emerging divide, we ask the question, is the United Nations obsolete? Hi, everybody, and that is the question we're taking on today. Born of idealism and built by the winners of a now distant world war, the United Nations has racked up a mixed record of some wonderful successes and some spectacular failures in its 76 years. But we're looking at the present moment, given the several truly global crises and challenges of our time, from trade wars to cyber attacks to climate change, it seems to make sense that we would have a truly global body to organize and manage a truly global response. Is the United Nations that organization right now ready and adaptable to the moment, or is the UN of today obsolete? That's our debate. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared. You are going to decide who wins this debate, and we're going to have you do that by voting two times, once before you've heard the arguments, and once again after you've heard the arguments. And the team whose numbers go up the most between the first and the second vote will be declared our winner. So let's do the first vote right now, and here's how we're going to ask you to do that. You're going to go to iq2us.org. That's iq2us.org. I'll give you a second to pull that up on your web browser or on your cell phone, iq2us.org. Okay, when you're there, you will be able to tell us where you stand on today's resolution, which again is the UN is obsolete by voting for, against, or undecided on that resolution. Again, it's iq2us.org. I'll give you one more second to get your first vote in. Okay, and now it's time to meet our debaters. Arguing for the motion, the UN is obsolete, is Rajan Menon, political scientist and professor at the City College of New York. His partner is Niall Gardner of the Heritage Foundation and a former foreign policy aide to British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Opposing them, Angela Kane, former German diplomat and former UN High Representative for Disarmament Affairs, as well as Under Secretary General at the United Nations. Her partner, Mohammed Mahmoud Mohamedou, 
former Minister of Foreign Affairs of Mauritania, and a scholar of history and politics. This debate, of course, done in partnership with Foreign Affairs, a leading magazine for in-depth analysis and debate of foreign policy, geopolitics, and global affairs. All right, and now here we all are. I happen to be at the moment in New York City, just a few blocks from United Nations headquarters, but we have uh, people from far-flung corners of the world. So I want to welcome all of you. Thanks for joining us at Intelligence Squared. Great to be here. Hello there. And uh, let me just, uh, just ask you where you all are. Mahmoud, where are you located right now? I'm in Geneva, right next to the UN office. And Angela? I'm in Washington, D.C. And uh, Rajan? Well, John, as you know, I live in New York City, but at the moment I'm in a tiny village in New Hampshire. Uh, okay, and Niall? Uh, John, uh, I'm uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. at the moment. All right. Well, as I say, it's great uh, that at, at least in this pandemic period, it enables us all to stay in touch from far distant points of view, uh, places. Though we can't be on a real stage, we can all share this screen together and make this debate happen. So let's uh, go and do that right now. Let's move on to our first of three rounds. Round one will be opening statements from each debater in turn. Those statements will be four minutes each. Our resolution again is the UN is obsolete. And first up to speak in support of the motion, here is Rajan Menon. Rajan, the screen is all yours. Thank you, John, and thank you to Intelligence Square. Ladies and gentlemen, the UN evokes considerable admiration. So allow me to begin by clarifying some points. Mal Gardner and I are not here to argue that the UN does nothing of value. That would be untrue and hence unpersuasive. Nor are we here to argue that the UN should be abolished. We don't believe it should be. No state would want it. Why would states want it abolished? The UN lacks the power to get states to do anything they don't want to do, and yet states routinely use the UN to further their interest. What a lovely arrangement. Why spoil that? I want to make in the time that I have a twofold argument for your consideration. First, United Nations no longer represents the world as it is. It has a representational problem. The world has changed, the UN has not changed to match it. Second, the UN has an efficacy problem. That is, on the major issues of the day, in terms of moving the needle, it has been either irrelevant or peripheral. Let's begin with the representational problem, part of the reason why the UN is in danger of becoming obsolete. If you look at the Security Council, it has been frozen in time, ladies and gentlemen, for 76 years, except for the admission of the People's Republic of China in 1971. Frozen in time. But the world surely hasn't been frozen in time. Over 100 new countries emerged as a result of decolonization in Africa and Asia. Japan and Germany rose from the ashes of World War II and have long since become economic powers of great consequence. India, soon to surpass China in population, has been a democracy for 75 years and has the seventh largest GDP in the world. Indonesia, long since liberated from Dutch colonialism, has about 216 million people, the largest Islamic country in the world. Now, look at the UN. No India, no Indonesia, no Germany, no Japan. Not a single country from Latin America, notwithstanding the fact that Brazil has the ninth largest GDP in the world. 
Not a single African country, even though Africa has 1.2 billion people. So in this sense, the UN has a representational problem. It is called the Parliament of Humankind, but it no longer represents the world that we see before us. Now let me be, uh, move to the efficacy problem. And I'll be brief because Niall will pick up on this and will have much more to say. If you made a short list of the world's critical problems, they would probably include mass atrocities, arms control, pandemics, and climate change. On these issues, our point is not that the UN has done nothing of value. That would not be true. It is that it has either been irrelevant or peripheral or had catastrophic failures. Catastrophic failures such as peacekeeping, for example, where mass atrocities were allowed to occur in places like Rwanda, Bosnia, and elsewhere, most recently in the South Sudan. As for being irrelevant, if you look at pandemics and climate change, I would submit to you that the prime movers have been states. When there are global problems such as these, and states are required to act in the collective interest and set their short-term interests aside, the UN has not been able to orchestrate collective action. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you for your opening statement. Our next statement will be against the resolution. It comes from Angela Kane, and Angela, the screen is yours. Thank you very much, uh, John. And uh, you've already mentioned that the uh, world has changed a lot in the 76 years since the UN was founded by just about a quarter of the member states that it has today. And uh, it has a lot of conflicts. It's a totally different world that we are confronted with. And I wonder, can all of these solved, these issues that we're confronting today, can they actually be solved by one nation? Or can they be solved by, let's say, a community of nations? Can they be solved by multinational uh, corporations? The conflicts do not carry passports. They do not respect borders. But our challenges are all interlinked. And it is only by way of working together multilaterally that we can work together as a global family to actually solve our common problems. And the only platform that can solve this is actually the UN because they can search, they can support the search for global solutions, they can monitor the implementation because it is one institution, but it has a lot of funds and programs and agencies, and they can really be put all at the service of the peoples of this world. Politicians very often think short term. It's usually the duration of their time in office. The UN, however, looks at the long term issues. They sort of say, what can we do today to actually improve the lives of the peoples uh, 20 years from now? And when you think about the sustainable development goals, this is a blueprint with 17 goals. Uh, there are many targets, there are many actions for peace and prosperity. And that really does sound pretty grandiose. But the goals are very simple. What is it? Good health, uh, education, gender equality, climate change, justice and strong institutions. Those are just a couple of the very all-encompassing goals that the UN and the member states, not the UN, but the member states have set for themselves. Today, there are 235 million people in the world who need humanitarian assistance and protection. And uh, in, that's, when you think about it, it's one in 33. And last year, the UN raised over $19 billion in voluntary funds to basically feed the population, to help them and to assist them. And again, how 
Is that going to be possible if by one member state or by a number of member states? And let's talk also about the peacekeeping operations. Yes, they do stay for long periods of time, but so do national military engagements. Again, think of Afghanistan. And several U.S. studies have, for example, concluded that uh, the uh, U.N. peacekeeping is twice as cost-effective as national engagements, uh, plus the cost is shared among member states and there's a wider international acceptance of these operations. And yes, there is a lot of function, dis- talk about dysfunction in the Security Council, and that's been an important negative. But this lies with individual states. It does not lie with the U.N. as a, as a role. And I think that during the Cold War, we also faced um, a long trail of dysfunction. And that was followed by a very productive session of um, peaceful and productive cooperation. And I'm the eternal optimist, and I think this is going to continue and come back well. Thank you. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's get back to our debate. So you've heard the first two opening remarks and now up on the screen with an opening statement in support of the resolution that the U.N. is obsolete. Here is Niall Gardner. Niall, the screen is yours. John, thanks. uh, Thanks very much for hosting us uh, today. And uh, this is an extremely important and very timely issue for for debate, actually. Is the United Nations obsolete? Uh, And certainly it's a view of Rajan and myself that the U.N., is in fact obsolete, and that's based on looking at the evidence and the facts that we have available. Uh, Everyone wants the United Nations to to succeed. Uh, And that includes, of course, uh, the US, a taxpayer that puts in several billion dollars a year into the United Nations system. The United Nations, the whole of the free world wants the UN to to succeed at every level. Unfortunately, I think the the founding vision uh, of, of uh, those who set up the United Nations in the aftermath of World War II, the greatest war in our history, that founding vision, I think, has largely evaporated. And I think what we have today with the United Nations is tremendous disillusionment uh, with the UN system. And the United Nations has failed on so many uh, fronts. And I, I'm going to address, in particular, the UN's uh, failure with regard to uh, human rights, with its failure to stand up to acts of genocide, its failure to stand up to the most dictatorial regimes in the world. And at the heart of that failure, really, is the fact that uh, the United Nations contains within it so many authoritarian and dictatorial regimes who actually use uh, the UN as a shield to protect their own nefarious activities. And one only has to look at the, the UN Human Rights Council as a perfect example of that. Let's see who sits on that council today. That includes the likes of China, uh, Russia, Cuba, some of the world's worst human rights violators sit on the UN Human Rights uh, Council. Uh, the UN simply does not stand up for the values of its original United Nations Charter. It has let down many of the most vulnerable people in the world. UN peacekeeping operations across the world, many of them have been spectacular failures. If you look at the Congo peacekeeping mission, Monuc, there were over 150 instances of major human rights violations carried out by UN peacekeepers and UN officials. This is a staggering failure. Where is the United Nations today standing up to China with its genocide against the the Uyghurs? Where is the United 
nations in terms of standing up to the likes of the Assad regime in Syria, which has used chemical weapons time and time again. The United Nations has failed on so many fronts. It has been a massive uh, disappointment. And the reality is, at this time, uh, the United Nations certainly is a broken institution. It has lost the faith of so many across, across the free world. It has become the plaything of some of the most brutal dictatorships on earth. This has to change. Uh, and it's certainly our, our view that the United Nations in its present form is obsolete. This is an institution that we want to succeed. But as it stands at the moment, it just has been a massive failure on so many fronts. Thank you very much. Thank you, Niall. And our final opening statement will be against the resolution that the UN is obsolete. In other words, it's an endorsement of the UN. It comes from Mohammed Mahmoud Mohamedou. And Mohammed Mahmoud, the, the floor and the screen is yours. Thank you very much, John. We've just heard quite an indictment for, of the United Nations. In fact, we can add to this. The United Nations uh, is certainly not the most efficient of organizations. We can look at its heavy bureaucracy. We can look at its convoluted nature. But that is not the issue, and I'm not here to wave the flag of an institution that needs a lot of fixing and is in need of soul searching. The issue is whether an organization that was set up less than 100 years ago, 76 years ago, which is not a lot of time in matters of history and governance and international organizations in the current era, whether such an organization is obsolete. Now, the definition of obsolescence is that something is no longer needed because something better has been invented instead of it. Well, that is not the case. There is no other organization in sight that could do the kind of issues that you just heard my colleague uh, mentioning that has a comprehensive mission. And let us for a moment set aside the cynicism that is so prevalent these days and look at the mission and the mandate, the very letter of bringing peace and prosperity to all around the world. Well, if we look at this in terms of those, then I think two key issues are fundamental. First of all, in terms of how this came about, in terms of the very notion of the concept of inefficiency that we heard our colleagues from, well, evidence of inefficiency is not evidence of obsolescence. What matters, as I said, is the mandate, the mission, and there is no other organization that could do this. If the problem is the Security Council, as it certainly is, then reform it, as many have been trying to do for many years. If the problem is the funding, then, well, let's, let's make it steady and resourceful and, 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 and plenty of this. If it's the staffing, then let's have a proper merit system. If the issue is sexism or racism, then let's deal with this uh, seriously. Well, none of this is reason enough to cancel out the one organization that has this comprehensive mission at its heart and which has not been uh, failed uh, when it comes to the letter of what was designed uh, many uh, decades ago. Secondly, and most importantly, every time the world came out of major trauma, it ran to this very place of putting together such an institution. After the brutality of World War I, the League of Nations was set up. After the horrors of World War II, the United Nations was created. After decolonization, this, the new young states of the Middle East, Africa, Asia, ran out to that very organization for their place in the world. At the end of the Cold War, the whole concept of human security, peace building, was reinvented, the agenda for peace, that whole language that we practice today was designed during that decade with the United Nations front and center. Certainly not doing so successfully, but that is not evidence of obsolescence. After 9-11, the conversation on security began right then and there. 
time and again, we went to that very place that wants us to develop corporations and matters of working together. Finally, if you look at the world today and see all of the ills that are around us, from the pandemic to racism, to injustice, to poverty, to poor education, to systemic inequities, to gender inequities, to youth unemployment, there is no other organization that it has in its mandate and a place for all, including indeed the bad students in this world, as were mentioned. There is one entity that is designed to deal with this, and the United Nations, in that sense, is absolutely not obsolete. So I would say that the argument for the obsolescence of the United Nations is in fact short-sighted. It doesn't do justice to the very concept that stands at the heart of this organization, which remains universal. And so for that reason, and for the reason that my colleague mentioned earlier, I invite you to vote against the motion that the United Nations is obsolete, for it certainly is not. Thank you very much, Mahmoud. And that concludes our first round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is, the U.N. is obsolete. And now we move on to round two, and round two is where uh, the debaters have a conversation and address one another directly. They can ask each other questions, and also we'll be taking questions from me. Um, my observation on the opening statements is that the, the side that's arguing that the United Nations is obsolete, not calling for the abolition of the United Nations as it exists, conceding that it does some things well, but points out its uh, shortcomings, some of which have been described as catastrophic. On the other side, the team that's arguing in support of the United Nations is not saying that the organization is perfect, concedes that it does some things poorly, uh, but fundamentally says that it has done uh, more good than harm uh, and and has an indispensable role in the world. And it's that indispensable role question I want to take first uh, as a question to you, Rajan. Um, we, we heard Mahmoud make the case that if there were not a United Nations, we would have to invent one. That the, and, and Angela made the same point, that individual states, even clusters of states, cannot uh, are, are incapable of, of bringing the sort of force and power in an organization to certain kinds of challenges that face the world today. And so uh, I, I, want, I want you to respond to that sort of more philosophical uh, part of the discussion before we get into the details of the organization as it exists now. Do you agree with them that uh, we, we, we do need a, a global UN-like type of organization? Well, John, there's an interesting argument that's being developed by our esteemed opponents, which is to say that all the faults of the UN are due to its member states and all the good things are due to the UN. Well, that's not a realistic way of looking at the UN. The UN is embedded in the world as it is, and it has to be taken or liked or disliked based on how it's functioned in the world as it is. As for, well, if you do away with it, we would all be in terrible shape. I mean, those are not the alternatives before us. The alternatives before us is to ask the question, how well is it doing the job that it's set out to do? Let me give you some examples of glaring failures. In 2018, there was an internal audit by the UN of the UN peacekeeping operation. Fraud increased over the previous year 40%. Sexual abuse increased by about 70%. In South Sudan today, UN peacekeepers are being investigated for giving arms to the contending parties, ratcheting up a war that has killed 385 million people. So the question is not, oh, we don't have anything else. The real question is, how well is what we have doing? I want to bring Mahmoud into the conversation as well to respond to some of some of what you're hearing and what would your your pushback be? Because I, I heard you in your opening, Mahmoud, saying that 
what the organization needs is reform, and that it, which would imply that you believe that it is reformable, uh, so that that you you do not see these failures as fatal to the operation of the organization's mission or reputation. Exactly, not at all. And I think precision and nuance is very important here. The, the, the notion of something irrelevant and obsolete, as we said, which is the heart of the motion, and we need to keep coming back to this because that is the question that is being asked, is really something that does not apply to the United Nations when we look at the mandate, as we said, and we look at the history. Uh, if we go with this notion that something is not working because someone is, is getting in the way, again, the Security Council, yet yeah, it's been going on for even more than 20, 25 years, but so what? It's because there is political uh, pressure on this. And the elephant in the room at the United Nations, which everyone knows about, is that great power politics, which, by the way, would be coming back even more uh, sort of strongly if we remove the United Nations, as we've seen already the sort of the trend taking place since the mid the 2010s uh, with the Trump administration, the Putin administration. We've seen this around the world as well. Now, in any one of these cases, it's because some of these missions were prevented from uh, working in that way. And in fact, interestingly, Rwanda is not so obviously a failure of the UN as it is the evidence is there that it was the Clinton administration and then some of the European powers and some of the African nations that were not interested in going there at the time. The people on the ground have written extensively about this. The Canadian head of the mission, his Ghanaian deputy, the Senegalese fellow that died there. Evidence is that these people actually went there because there was a United Nation, that there was this mission. And then, yes, politics, uh, bureaucracy, as I said, and all of this prevented this. The question of the genocide is also a little bit too easy. The two biggest genocides of the 20th century took place before the United Nations, the Holocaust and Armenia. So if it's simply the question of, of, of genocides, yes, they could happen, but they could also happen outside of this. And I want to go back to this notion of something obsolete for the third time. If we say that something is not working, then we need to so quickly get rid of it. Well, this would apply to all of the problems that we have with statehoods. How many states in the world are not functioning so easily? Corporations, bad civil society that would have politics, the school system that is not working. So the concept here is that we have the one organization that is certainly not doing so well. I grant that and I highlight that because it's a matter of intellectual honesty and because it's, it, we can all see it. But the one organization that has been designed that countries could go to as they are. And let us remember how in the 60s that we mentioned history here, how these young nations look the Algerians took their case to the UN against colonial France, as it is, in the hope that that one organization would solve it, as it is. And so this notion of having a space, a forum, where these issues need to be addressed, and a forum, yes, that is in need of reform, absolutely count me in on that, including on the Security Council, is, I think, the important point in this conversation. I don't accept the definition here, it's very convenient, that has been put forward about obsolescence. That is, obsolescence means you have to get rid of it. That is not the argument that Niall and I are making. On Rwanda, if you read well, that's the, the memoirs of General Dallaire, it is impossible to conclude that it was solely the fault of the states and not of the UN. So here again, we have an interesting argument. All the credit goes to the UN whenever their failures are pointed out. Oh, those are the member states. Well, that's a dodge. It doesn't, it doesn't work. I really must say that uh, I, I think there's so much commingling of what the UN, quote unquote, is doing and what the UN, quote unquote, is not doing. But on the other hand, the uh, situation in, Afghan in Afghanistan is a very dire one. And I don't see that the United Nations can actually contain 
or whatever you want to call the word, the Taliban. But on the other hand, what the UN, and this is what I said in my opening statement, what the UN is doing is it's on the ground. It is feeding people. It is helping report on the situation of the woman. What is actually happening in the country? Most of the embassies, the Western embassies in particular, have closed. There are very few embassies that are actually open right now. So who's going to do that? And when you look at the situation on the ground, who are the people looking to to basically help them with their basic needs? That is actually the United Nations. And that's what we are doing. And to my mind, it's a part of a very effective UN because it stands up to injustice. It stands up for human rights. It stands up for women's rights. And those are very, very important uh, features that don't get reported in the press. It is certainly true that the UN may deliver food and so on to Afghanistan. And so Niall and I are not saying it doesn't do anything valuable. But let's be clear. What the Taliban allows the UN to do or not do will not be decided by the UN. It'll be decided by, in no particular order, Russia, China, and Pakistan, who are the prime movers there. The UN can't do anything without that diplomacy by individual states. That's one thing. Second, on climate change. Would it be useful to have a coordinating body that moved the world forward on climate change? Yes, it would be. But I submit to you that the main momentum toward addressing climate change will be the result of a very robust EU policy to reduce carbon emissions and the so-called more recent China 3060 policy. It will not be as a result of the UN. Final point, let us look at the pandemic the UN had a wonderful program, which I liked, I supported it, called COVAX. It would bargain with the drug companies, it would get drugs cheaply, uh, vaccines, and it would distribute it worldwide. What have we seen? A division between haves and have-nots. The wealthy countries vacuumed up the vaccine. Look around the world and look at the global south and look at the vaccination rates. They're abysmally small. Now you can say, well, that's not the UN's fault, it's the member states, but we come back to this familiar dodge. Everything that is good is done by the UN. Everything that's bad is by the big bad, big bad wolf, the member countries. The UN has got to be judged on how well it works in a world of sovereign, willful states. And that is its biggest problem. It is hamstrung time and time again. I want to move forward on, on a, on a, to, to look at some of the things that I want to uh, look at the, are not theoretical problems, but they're the problems of the present day, and to ask certain kinds of challenges that, are, that exist today that did not exist, certainly, 76 years ago. Cyber war. Cyber war is bec- it was not even on the radar at the time. And I'll throw this question out generally, whoever wants to take it first, but is the United Nations an organization that is well-suited to helping the world deal with and, and, and control the dangers of cyber warfare? Who are the two, two of the key players, actually, in terms of, of uh, you know, carrying out nefarious acts of cyber warfare? Russia and China. Uh, they're both on the UN Security Council. They're both at the heart of the, the UN Human Rights uh, Council. Uh, so if we expect the United Nations to play any serious role in terms of, of dealing with, uh, you know, cyber warfare, uh, you know, we have to hold uh, two of the, the UN's key uh you know, National Security Council members to, to account, I mean, namely Beijing and, and Moscow. The reality is the United Nations is not going to lift a finger. Uh, the United Nations is not going to condemn anything that Russia does or China does. Uh, and we're seeing that in a huge way with, the, uh, with the, the Uyghur genocide at the moment. There's no condemnation within the United Nations of what China is doing, because, of course, China sits uh, on the committees of most of the powerful uh, committees within, within the United Nations. So, so there, there we have it. You're not, you're not going to see the United Nations realistically taking any kind of active
active role in terms of combating cyber warfare because uh, a lot of its chief players are the, the key conductors of, of uh, cyber warfare. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. This is a reminder to all of you that Intelligence Squared U.S. is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. We would love your support. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to learn more. More debate when we return. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. Let's get back to our debate. So in a, in a way, you're saying the well is poisoned completely on that one. I want to let Angela take on that question. I think it's a very interesting question, particularly the way you're phrasing it in terms of cyber warfare. Uh, this is an issue that goes back many, many years. And actually, it was the Russian Federation at the time who put the issue of cyber onto the agenda of the United Nations. And it did so in the Office for Disarmament Affairs, which is very interesting because it was also talking about actually military implications of that. Now, how does the UN, quote unquote, the UN deal with this? And this is very interesting because there are two ways of handling this. Normally, what happens is you have sort of open-ended working groups. And that means it's like any member state who is interested in the topic can join this. And this is usually the first step. But with regard to the cyber issue, there have been a number of what they call group of governmental experts. And that means that member states can volunteer or they can be invited to be part of this group of governmental experts. And yes, the P5 are usually members of them. And in the case of the cyber issue, there was recently the last group of governmental experts. There have been about four of them, I believe. Uh, the last one was 2014, and then this was one. And this group came up with something that maybe does not sound very revolutionary, but to my mind is a consensus forming and is a first step to make further progress. And that is that whatever is dealt with on land or on the world also applies to cyberspace. And that means that there is a certain accountability for actions. That doesn't mean that they say or that the group says or that the UN later on says is that you cannot commit, uh, uh, we have to make cybercrime accountable. Yes, there is an accountability. But on the other hand, the recognition and the acceptance of the fact that there are laws that exist that also apply to cyberspace is really, really important. And maybe it doesn't sound like much, but have you read anything about this in the papers? No, but it is something that will be worked on again. Mm -hmm. It will come forward in October during the committee, uh, during the General Assembly First Committee when it meets. And it is supported by many member states. And yes, the P5, Russia, China, were in that working group, in that group of governmental experts. Finally, there, there was one more point I wanted to bring up that, that um, actually, now you brought up. It's the fact that China sits on the Security Council as a permanent member with a veto. And, you know, we're in, we're in a period of time when China is, you know, so to speak, getting kind of hegemonic these days. Uh, its ambitions are growing and it's acting on those ambitions. If China became a threat uh, of, of any kind, and one might also argue that it's already a threat to certain members of its popula own population. Is the United Nations in a position to do anything about that? Is the United Nations, in fact, doing anything about that, given the fact that China is a member with enormous influence? I'd like to throw that to whoever would like to take that on. I'll take it, John. The main entity in the UN for enforcing threats to the peace is the Security Council. Any discussion that brings up China as a threat to world peace is dead on arrival. So if you postulate, and we can have a debate on how big a threat China is, that it's a threat, it's going to be taken care of by old-fashioned balance of our politics. The UN will at best be a peripheral player. We're not saying irrelevant. We're not saying abolish. We're saying peripheral. 
That is not where the main action is going. Can you see a resolution condemning China as a threat to peace, passing but, the but Security Bishan, would, would, would you would you have would you have said in in the 1950s that the UN was obsolete in the 1950s because the Soviet Union had a seat in the Security Council? No, but your question to me was. The Chinese may become a threat. Let's stipulate that that's true for a moment. It's a more complicated issue. And what would the Security Council do about it? And I am saying exactly what happened back in the Cold War would do it, uh, would happen when either superpower found a resolution objectionable, it vetoed it. I submit to you that whether it's China's internal behavior or external behavior or hotspot like, like the South China Sea, the UN will have no role. Look at what happened when the International Tribunal found in favor of the Philippines in the South China Sea. The Chinese said, well, we just don't accept it. Can, can I have, can I, I want to say something on this. I think on this, actually, um, Professor Menon is, is correct. Um, but that is not the issue. Any country today or in the future could be a threat to peace and security. So the notion of the Security Council in its current configuration not being in sync with how the power structure of the world is, why France and not Germany, if you're looking at the power of Europe, for instance, is actually something that is a different problem than the question of the whole forum being no longer relevant, irrelevant, uh, obsolete. I would say, actually, I'll, I'll up that one. We can get rid of the Security Council and probably so. Why don't we have kind of a reformed UN in which you have the General Assembly, which would be much more democratic for that matter. The Security Council, ha- the conversation about it is about the configuration being problematic. This is not about the forum of the United Nations generally in its democratic ethos of representing the whole world and trying to find solutions to those issues. But and Mahmoud, if you take how out, if you take out China, if you take out China, it's not going to solve it. I yeah, agree but with that. Mahmoud, just a minute. How likely do you think it is that the P5 will allow the Security Council to be unlikely. sidelined totally and for the General Assembly to unlikely. have a Look, I'm with you. Maybe yeah. that's desirable, and so but it's not, but that's it's not, not ever going to happen. You know that. But let's come to something else, and that is basically like, why would any country be labeled a threat? It really depends on what vantage point you're coming from. I mean, maybe the U.S. is seen as a threat because it is, you know, wanting to be all-powerful policemen of the world, et cetera, et cetera, even though we've moved beyond that. So this I find very interesting. I mean, think about the Cold War. I think you, John, just asked about 1950. Well, what about the Cold War? Was Russia considered a threat then? I mean, the UN still continued to exist. And uh, even after the Cold War, you had a very productive period. And so this is something that I don't understand. You will not have, quote, the United Nations label a country as a threat, but you can criticize. And the other point I wanted to make is that countries do change. And I'm thinking particularly of China, because we've talked a lot about China. When you think about the early time, for example, with Syria, Syria and was was basically China and Russia very often vetoed resolutions that went against uh, Syria. That is no longer the case. I think when you look at the vetoes, when you look at the voting behavior of China and the Security Council, it's actually changed. And so that, to me, means that, yes, there is change possible, and it does happen. And it is very rare that we can influence, or the United Nations can influence, that something that happens on a national determination basis. Okay, I have to break in there. The the lines of division are clear in this conversation, but that concludes round two of this debate. And here's where we are. We're about to hear brief closing statements from each debater. Uh, These statements will be two minutes each. 
it's their last chance to try to change your minds because remember, right after this round, we will ask you to vote for a second time and your votes will decide uh, which team has been most persuasive and therefore our winner. So let's move on to round three, closing statements and first making his closing statement in support of the resolution that the UN is obsolete. Here is one more time, Rajan Menon. I come from a family of diplomats and I was raised to revere the UN. People like Uthant, Dag Hammarskjöld, the second Secretary General of the UN, were lionized in my family. I remember a faded book in my grandfather's study called How the UN Operates. And when I was a 12-year-old boy, I took it down and read it. And it was by David Cushman Coyle. And I was curious, whether the book is still around, I Googled it on Amazon. And it's not around now, it's out of print. So taken was I by that book that I thought I would one day like to join the UN. But ladies and gentlemen, sentiment and boyhood ambitions are one thing. But careful study and reflection obliges me, obliges you, obliges all of us to take sentiment and put it aside and ask the question, has the UN been able to lead on the issues that matter? What is its degree of efficacy? What is its degree of representativeness? How well does it mirror the world of today? How likely are the reforms that every one of us agree should happen, likely to happen. I think that they will not happen. I urge you, ladies and gentlemen, to support the motion and give your vote, Niall and me. Thank you for listening. Thank you, uh, Rajan Menon. And next, a closing statement against the resolution that the UN is obsolete. Here is Angela Kane. We've talked a lot about the big issues and what the UN can and cannot do. I have been privileged to work for the United Nations for over 35 years. I do believe in its mission, and uh, I think that it does a very good work on many issues, and uh, I, every one of us can contribute to that. And I'm just thinking about uh, one of the issues that I worked on, and that was the peace negotiations in El Salvador, and that was between the government and the guerrillas at the time, the FMLN. Uh, this was a 12-year war that had seen 75,000 people killed. And the, uh, when the peace negotiations were being negotiated, uh, basically the guerrillas wanted jobs after the war. They had missed years of schooling because of the fighting in the jungles. And the government sort of did not see any avenues to give them jobs because they didn't have the requisite year of schooling that they needed. And they also wanted to enter the police force, for example. They wanted to do good for the people. Uh, and uh, when we had finished the, current, the uh, negotiations, we actually uh, managed uh, to get jobs for women. And we managed also to relax the uh, re educational requirements. And that was really something that was tremendously important for the people of El Salvador for these people who had fought against the government. And I'm really very proud of it. And such achievements, they never make the press. They never get acknowledged. And therefore, it is very difficult. But they were very important victories for the countries of the, of the people. And what was also important, and that's another avenue that the UN does very good work, is, for example, there was a Commission on the Truth on El Salvador that was established in the peace negotiations. And that meant that there was an eight months work and it came out with a factual report. It said there were atrocities committed on both sides and a tremendously 
uh, helped in the healing of a divided society because we all want to live in a peaceful society. We want to fight for justice. I've seen it in the disadvantaged eyes of the in the eyes of the disadvantaged peoples that I have worked with over the years. And I think that's really all that people want: live in peace and help make a better life. And that's why I want you to vote against the notion that I want the UN to continue its good work. Thank you. Thank you, Angela Kane. And our next speaker will be again arguing in support of the motion that the UN is obsolete. Here is Niall Gardner. Thanks very much, uh, John, and thank you to uh, to our debating uh, colleagues and and to my debate partner, Rajan. It's been a tremendous uh, debate on on an extremely uh, important uh, issue. And uh, I had the the honor of serving as an expert actually on the congressionally mandated task force on reform of the United Nations uh, back in 2005. I I also testified before Congress several uh, times on UN-related issues, including the UN oil for food uh, scandal and the UN peacekeeping scandal in, in the Congo. And I had the opportunity as well to to travel to the United Nations and to meet with many uh, UN officials. Uh, And I I came away with the conclusion that the United Nations, despite the fact that there are many very good people working at at the UN who who are dedicated to their mission, but the reality is the UN as it currently stands is broken. It is obsolete. Uh, It is an institution that has failed on so many uh, fronts. Uh, And it's heartbreaking to, to see that on so many levels. It is extremely heartbreaking, especially to see uh, the the large numbers of people who have looked to the United Nations for their protection, for their their safety in the face of monstrous evil, from the killing fields of of Rwanda to the concentration camps of of Xinjiang province in China today. Uh, Millions have looked to the UN for their safety and their protection, but the UN has consistently let them down. Uh, and that is a, a massive failure on the part of, of the United Nations. Uh, and uh, I urge uh, all of you listening today to put aside just uh, you know, sentiment or sentimentality about the United Nations, but to, to really look at the evidence that is in place. Uh, and, and I urge you to uh, support the motion that the United Nations is indeed obsolete. Thank you, Niall Gardner. And getting literally the last word in the debate itself, making his argument against the resolution that the UN is obsolete, here once again is Mahmoud Mohamedou. Thank you very much, John, and thank you to the colleagues. It's been a very spirited and very uh, nuanced and intelligent conversation. Um, I want to call you, ladies and gentlemen, to the importance of experience and and self-reflection. A few years ago, you might have found me on the other side of this motion. Um, At the age of 22, I had the privilege of sitting in the Security Council uh, when it met in November 1990, ahead of the Gulf War, and followed these discussions and was struck by the level of real politics. I then went on in a postdoctoral degree and trying to look at the intricacies of these organizations and came to see their limitations. I then served as foreign minister and was able to put this theory in practice. And now in my critical scholarship, I teach these issues to my graduate students and we have conversations on them all the time. What I have learned from this is that it's too easy to criticize the United Nations in this fashion, in this radical fashion that it is obsolete and needs to be get rid of in that sense. I see that this is an organization that has much 
to improve, that has many faults. But the United Nations, I could say so easily to you, is what we make of it. Not only the states, but all of us. It is the world we inhabit. It doesn't sit out there in outer space, removed from the ills of this world that were there before and will certainly be there after it's gone. What I've seen is the promise to the elderly in the global south of what the United Nations could give it. I could see with my graduate students here, privileged youth in the global north, sort of the inspiration that it gives them to do, conduct such work. And so with that, I certainly see that the United Nations is not obsolete. I see that its promise is very much relevant and it's its mission that I think remains in its nobility and the way that historically it came to be. And for that reason, and for everything we have discussed and evidence, certainly not sentimentality, I would like to invite you to vote against the motion that the United Nations is obsolete. And I thank you for your attention. Thank you, uh, Mahmoud Mohamedou, and thank you to all of our debaters. As that concludes the final round of our Intelligence Square debate, and it's time now for our second and final vote. Remember, it's the side that sways the most minds between the first and the second vote that will be declared our winner. It works the same way as before. Go back to iq2us.org. You'll have the same choices as before for, against, or undecided. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be keeping this vote open for seven days and inviting the general public to watch and vote also. And at the end of those seven days, we will announce the winner on our website, iq2us.org. The competition is over. I just wanted to thank our debaters, Angela, Rajan, Mahmoud, and Niall, for uh, a really excellent debate. Uh, And also, I want to thank you for the way that you conducted it. Uh, You... you, obviously all feel very passionately about this issue. There's really, I could sense, significant overlap in a lot of your worldviews. You just happen to disagree on this motion as we phrased it, but you, you argued it with, uh, with respect for one another uh, and with respect for the audience and with, with respect for this process of dialogue. So I want to thank you all for the way that you took part in this. Thanks to all of you for, for living up to the spirit of Intelligence Squared. Thank you for hosting this. Thank you very, thank much. You very much. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And I also, I also want to thank our audience for being an audience for something like this, for joining this, because this is what we do. We, we try to bring to you and to millions of listeners around the world real debate through our podcasts and, and our television and public radio, and we do it all for free. It's something we care about a lot here at Intelligence Squared. As I've said many times before, we are a nonprofit uh, we do, uh, you know, we turn to you for support. And if you want to support us or just want to learn more about what we do or to watch one of the more than 200 debates we've produced to date, uh, go to, again, our website, iq2us.org, or to our app through the Google and Apple stores. I encourage you to uh, check out our website at iq2us.org to cast your votes and then check back in in seven days to see which team won. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope that you enjoyed it just as much as we did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. And Shay O'Mara is our consulting producer. Jen Zelmer is our senior researcher. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan.